podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. No Barrett today, so I brought extra hair with me. I'm Jared Kimber. Uh, we are going to talk about all the things of the last couple of days, as we often do on Uncovered. And uh, what? And in, because we don't have Barrett, we will then also look at doing anything as it relates to questions in YouTube. So if you ever want to do that, feel free. This is a good day to do it as any. Uh, super chats are the best ones because then I can definitely get to your questions. But uh, I will pick anything from the group at any time based on my own personal whims. But let's start with Australia, India. I feel like I recorded Wagon Wheel, I was going to say halfway through that test, but I suppose it was like 90% of the way through that test. And from from there, I, I'm not sure I have that much extra to say. I've been interested in the, the pitch stuff. I think that that was obviously a particularly spicy deck. And the fact that Rohit Sharma said that's the kind of deck that they want and that they expect their batters to be better. Can you expect your batters to be better on a wicket like that? Like you can expect them to be better than the opposition. I think that's fair. But they're always going to fail occasionally when you when you make a wicket that slanted in front of a bowler. And if you look at what uh, I think I saw a lot of people talking about Indian bowlers uh, not bowling particularly well, which I think is probably fair. I saw a lot of people talking about the fact that Australia had better fields and all this sort of stuff. When you've been bowled out for 100, you have to be perfect with the ball. You have to be do everything right. And I think in the case of India in that particular test match, they chased it, and that's understandable because they were thinking they had to bowl Australia out for you know, 120, 130 probably, 55 if we're being completely honest. And I think in those sorts of situations, you make more mistakes. We've seen Australia and other teams go to India and do similar things. It just happened to be that India was on the bad side of it. But I, I do find the whole making the pitches incredibly friendly for bowling an odd thing overall. You know, I talked about it in the video the other day, the, how you're taking what I think is a big advantage to India, which is that no team can hang with them, especially over you know a long period of time, especially when you factor that they don't just have three good spinners. They might have one, two, and three, the, you know, the three best spinners in world cricket. So part of their overall skill is the fact that they their spinners won't get tired or won't be as bad over a long period of time. You know, We saw Todd Murphy and Nathan Lyon in the first test get tired because they didn't have you know, adequate uh, backup available to them. And, and Australia have had, what, four bowlers all the way through? So again, India, uh, until Green came back. So again, a lot of teams don't have that sort of fifth bowling option uh, when they're in India to go up against them. Just seems to me that you're taking away a lot of your natural advantages. But the other side, of course, is that if you do want your bowlers to play forever, kind of not massively against it uh, from from that perspective. Like I do understand the the thinking behind it. Uh, like if you want Ashwin, no, how old's Ashwin now? Thirty four, thirty five, whatever he is. If you want him to play until he's forty, you probably don't want him bowling. 60, I'm trying to think. Um, I think Murali and, and, and El Kumble bowled around 50 to 60 overs per game. That was home in a way, of course. But you probably don't want Ashwin bowling quite that much, I would think. But it's uh, it was very interesting. From Australia's point of view, obvious, obviously, Nathan, well, Kuhneman in the first innings and Nathan Lyon in the second innings, I thought they both did really well. 
It was interesting. Uh, Dan Brennig's released a piece today about Nathan Lyon bowling with more side spin. I think we saw in the first test that was part of his problem, and that's. I think that's always been his his biggest problem. I don't, I don't think that Nathan Lyon's ever had a. I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. I don't think Nathan Lyon has ever had a issue with understanding what he should do. I think his bigger problems have often been, you know, the ability to do it. So if someone says bowl with more side spin, he's like, great, got it. But he doesn't always have the ability to just nail it first go in a way that, and it's unfair to compare him to Ashwin, but in a way that with Ashwin, you sort of know that that's how it works, right? If if we throw, if we say to Ashwin, you need to, you know, bowl flippers out of your butt crack, he will find a way to bowl flippers out of his butt crack. And that should also be the name of uh, any book that he has as well. Um <laughs> uh, I, I'm not putting myself forward to write that. Um, Barrett will probably try and write that, won't he? Bastard. Um, but yes, so from from Australia Indian perspective, I think those are the mo- those are the probably the most pertinent um, things that I have uh, so far to think about that series. From a series point of view, as a cricket fan, I'm just a neutral cricket fan, but I suppose I'm not because Australia's playing. But from a cricket fan perspective, it's always good if the last test is alive. So I really like that. Uh, from that side of things from a content creator a i enjoy the extra rest that um, the these short tests give but it's obviously harder to you know we were trying to build videos uh, uh, you know that we didn't have ready because we were going to do videos from a game that already wasn't existing i was i think i was still covering what new zealand england no was it bangladesh bangladesh england England's playing everyone at the same time and whatever i was so i was hoping to you know cover the rest of the the test properly in the last few days and there was no rest of the, the test. So it's a, it's, I think it's really, really interesting. I had a, a friend who you know, is a huge cricket fan and uh, has sort of been following the India-Australia series from afar, from afar. He said to him, it felt like nothing was sort of pulling him into the narrative just because these matches have been over so quickly and uh, they haven't been as exciting as as we would want over, you know, the three, four, five day narrative. I, I think that's a, f- a very fair thing to say. I, I would say that this has been an abnormally, I'm trying to think of the right word, an abnormally bland India Australia series. It, and f- in some ways, I've enjoyed that more. You know, of the Stephen Smith and the and the crease and the brain fade um, and you know all those sorts of things. You know, g- going back to Harbhajan Singh and, and everything else. It's just felt a little bit more relaxed at this time, but perhaps we just haven't had long enough. Maybe the tests have not gone long enough for us to actually feel like we, uh, like for anyone to get massively upset. There's obviously been little things along the way and there's always going to be little things, but it does feel to be a little bit more relaxing uh, than some of the other uh, India Australia test series that we have seen in the past. But uh, it's great that we have, as I said, a live series of sorts. I still expect India to win. I think I always expect, uh, picked India to win 3-1. Um, yeah, I'm certainly not going to change that now. <laughs> not now that I might be accidentally correct, but I always, uh, you know, from from that perspective, I always thought there was a chance that Australia could steal one test. It looked less likely after the first two. That's the only other thing I want to say. I actually wrote this in my piece the other day and I took it out. I should have kept it for this podcast. But the idea that they have lost two tests and so they can never beat this opposition, and we see this a lot. We saw this with India 36 not out. We've seen it with, you know, many teams when they get a long way behind in series. You could New Zealand, um, you know, just drew one all in a series where after eight days, you know, we're ready to shut shop on New Zealand. I do feel, and I'm not sure what this is, if this is just that there's more of us online and, you know, we see the YouTube comments and the, you know, tweets and the TikTok videos and everything else. And we get to a point where we are 
reacting faster, but we're reacting more absolute to these things. And I, I think some of it is the cricket as well, because test matches are over so quickly. They feel so finite. But when you actually do look back at India-Australia, there's obviously been times when Australia at least could have got themselves closer in those first two tests, if not had an advantage at, at well, maybe not an advantage, but were in the game uh, at, at certain times and then gave it away. And we sort of overlooked that because, you know, Australia losing two and a half days or three days or whatever that may be. And, you know, the same with New Zealand getting punched by England. And, and you do that. And the other thing is that we are, I think we are so used to, especially, and this doesn't relate as much to England, New Zealand, but does relate to India, Australia, that we get used to the fact that these these series are dominated by home teams now. If you go through the numbers, it's really interesting. I'm not sure this still holds up, but a couple of years ago when I had a look at it, the away teams were winning the same amount of tests, more or less. But the difference was that there were fewer draws and all the wins had shifted to the home teams, uh, suggesting that, you know, beforehand what would happen is, you know, a team away would find a way to draw a couple of tests, which would make the series more artificially close. But certainly look good on, on the leaderboard. Now that test matches are so slow, you know, in India because of these spinning pitches, but in uh, the rest of the world because of the, you know, pace pandemic, it, it just feels like there's almost a result every time. And, you know, generally the home team or the stronger team is going to, you know, win those test matches fairly quickly. And we just decide that the series is over then and there. And I think this was just another good example of, it, it's why I like to look at moments where the losing team is in the game. Because I do think that it gets so overlooked at the end. And, you know, something I talked about, I'm trying to remember if it was the first test when Akshar and Jadeja got together in the India-Australia series. And you're like, you know, let's say that Akshar goes out and hits the ball straight up in the air. Just one of those things, plays exactly the same shot and it doesn't work for him or drags one on where you know, he's edged it onto his pad and somehow it's rolled down the back of his thigh and hits the stumps. And, you know, Australia's back in that game and makes some runs. And, you know, we'll be thinking about things completely differently at that point. And you, there are lots of moments like that in test matches. And I think now, you know, if, if we look at this entire series, we, we know that the certainly the Indian top order has not been batting particularly well. And, that Akshar and Jadeja have probably dug them out of trouble a couple of times uh, with some of the tail enders as well. It's just something that I thought was, that should be mentioned more in these sorts of big series. But anyway, I'll leave that there. I'll move on to the Women's Premier League. I want to call it the WIPL just because I want to call it the Whipple. Um, I'm not sure if I can call WPL the Whipple, uh, but I like Whipple. And I think Whipple, I think Whipple is, I think it's the best name since the Georgie Pie Super Smash. Because um, we never had, we all, you know, I think it was someone on Twitter, it might have been someone like Andrew Nixon suggested, or Bertus de Jong suggested the Euro Thrash, um, and ended up calling it the Euro Slam. Euro Thrash would have been a great tournament, uh, which I would have happily not worked in because it fell apart before we had a chance to work in it, but I tried to work in it. But um, the Whipple, I'm a big fan of the Whipple. There's another one, what was, who was the Ram Slam? Super Smash. Yeah, Ram Slam. Was that the news? It was that the South African one. There's been a couple of good names. Anyway, uh, I, I saw a little bit of the first game. I didn't think the quality in that game was particularly strong. But the, the next the next day on the Sunday, I saw most of those games, I think. Yeah, most of those games. Uh, I was writing, but I had to get uh, the, the TV on. And I thought that was much stronger and, you know, very, very good. It's noticeable. And I think we've seen this at times in the Big Bash on the 100, just how small the boundaries are. I think. Even if that's a bit jarring on our eyes, I think over time they will start to 
you know, go back further and that won't be as big of an issue. But certainly at the moment, it does seem like uh, if you have a T20 league with women, the first thing you do is make the boundaries four metres past the uh, circle. I did make a joke that, you know, they're now all, the boundaries in those tournaments are now almost as short as the ones that Nottingham used to use for Trent Bridge. But um, no Nottingham fans enjoyed that joke when I made it. So I'll, I'll leave that alone. But yeah, I thought, A, it's great it started. Enjoyed the coverage of it so far. Would love to see how it goes. There's not that many games. So I, I kind of feel like we're already a big part, part way through the series. We've all, already got our first story which is the deandra dotton one really interested to see what happened there a team says that she's not playing because she's injured and she says uh i'm not injured uh, <laughs> i can't wait to see what that what happens there uh, really impressed by some of the indian domestic players specifically which i think that was always the, the big question you know that was the original thing that the um the BCCI said, wasn't it, that, that, that depth wasn't there. That hasn't been the case. The other player I really liked was Tara Norris, who's the USA cricketer. I know she plays cricket in England as well, but watching, uh, there aren't that many left-arm seamers in, in women's cricket, and I think anyone who's ever been on this channel will know that I'm obsessed with left-arm seam in kind of every part, every facet of, of, of cricket. And so watching her take, I don't know, how many wickets she end up with? five, six, seven, eight. It felt like she took half the team. I uh, was really impressed with that. Um, so, yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed the bits that I've seen so far. There's probably a game on now. Is there? What time of the day is it? Probably a game on now. But uh, I just finished the Bangladesh-England ODI and then came straight here to record this podcast. So I'm missing whatever the game is so far. But enjoyed, as I said, enjoyed the coverage of it. And everything. Oh, hashtag Whipple. Did, this Muku just put up a hashtag like, 14 minutes into our show completely uh, oh he's, he's double hashtag anyway let let you know let's get whipple trending or let's let's at least casually just say whipple amongst our uh, amongst our friends um anyway i'll have a break here and then after the break we're going to talk bangladesh england and a little bit about south africa west indies and first let's have a break here on uncovered with jared kimber and not barat sundarason Let's have a look at what we have so far here. So we have the um, Bangladesh England. So I've got some thoughts on this. I think this is a really interesting series because England should be probably in the top two favourites. There's a lot of people who think India should be automatic favourite for the World Cup. I'm not sure I feel that, but, you know, I've got no problem with I haven't looked at the recent odds. Uh, I think they were second favourite when I looked a while ago, but they surely are probably close to favourite now that England haven't been winning as much over recent times. Um but England are obviously a really interesting team, you know, current um, holders um, of, of the title. And this is their last ODIs in Asia before the World Cup. Now, Bangladesh, and I, I, my guess is that Bangladesh pitchers are going to play quite differently to what we'll see in the World Cup, which is fine and, and makes sense. But they do get a bit of an idea of what works and what doesn't work. And they've had two very different surfaces, of course, in, in the series so far. Um, the last one at Chattagram is... Uh, uh, I think um, Abhishek Janjamwala called it on the TalkSport com commentary, grippy. I like handsy. I felt like it was a handsy pitch early on. It did even out a little bit. But I thought that was the more interesting one for me, that England tried a lot of different things. Dawid Milan tried to attack from second ball just at the point when I figured he'd kind of booked himself as the backup batter for the World Cup or at least the backup to the backups in the World Cup. He then played a horrendous shot to Everdot Hussan, um, which – yeah, it was just a bizarre bit of cricket. But they then batted Sam Curran at number five. Now, I know Sam Curran's been asking about up the order basically every cricket team he's ever played at, if we're being honest. Probably since he was like 13, he's been asking about higher in the order. 
and they stuck him up at five. And this is no fault of their own, um, of course, but the game that they chose was probably the absolute worst case scenario for Sam Curran because it was a wicket where you kind of needed master spin skills of of skin master skin skin master spin manipulation skills so you know there are some players in the world like someone like Callum McLeod from Scotland that's the kind of wicket that he would have played very well on whereas you have someone like Sam Curran who's a really good hitter and you know can play the spinners okay but manipulating in that middle period is a really tricky thing for him to do and so he just ate up dot balls but I felt that it was an interesting thing with England doing going into a World Cup. They could make those decisions. In some ways, if Ben Stokes is not going to play, I wonder if Sam Curran batting at number five or number six is not a really good option for England. But the problem is I'm just not sure that he has the ability when he has to manipulate. I don't have any problem with him hitting later on. And perhaps they could use him and Moeen Ali and, you know, depending on who the bowls are and what the pitch is like, you send one or the other one up. But it, again, it's a very, you know, it's very England to try and, you know, force an all-rounder on the situation, you know, and make it work. So I thought I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. There, there was a few other things. Um, Ebedot, uh, I thought, bowled really well again. In fact, this is something I noticed about Bangladesh. They didn't always feel particularly well in, in the series. And they are a terrible running between wickets team, by the way. I think Crickford's told me they have the second worst uh, run-out ratio in one-day cricket behind uh, Sri Lanka. Terrible running between wicket team. But I did feel that, you know, watching them at times, that the one thing that has changed is they've got a lot of really good athletes now. And I don't know how that progresses into the future, but Eberdot was a volleyballer and he was in the uh, Bangladesh uh, Air Force. But you just watch him on the field and you're like, well, that's a proper athlete. Obviously, Taskin Ahmed was another one. Uh, they have Lytton Dust, who, you know, you know, again, very, very athletic there was a couple of other players that I've forgotten as well. You know, if you look at the previous sorts of generations, Shakib, Shakib for an all-rounder is very, I wouldn't say he's unathletic. He's kind of, I don't know what where you would classify him. Tamim is not particularly athletic. Mashrafa maybe would have been athletic, uh, but, uh, you know, in his case, uh, didn't have any knees left. It just feels like this new generation is coming through, you know, slightly different breeds of cricket. So it's a really interesting uh, subplot. I saw Shanto bat a couple of times in this uh, in this series. I'm worried about him against high pace. That may be not a huge problem in the World Cup. I don't think he's going to torch anyone on strike rates. I think in the BPL, he's the leading run scorer, but with a strike rate of around uh, 115, I want to say. But I, I really like the way he batted at times. And the, I really like the way he thought through things. Other than he's running between wickets, which might be trash. I, I really do like the way he thought his way through a couple of innings there and making runs against Bangladesh. I'd say overall for Bangladesh, you know, we know they have this great record at home. They've ended up losing this series 2-1. But I did feel watching them that they were a long way behind England. Uh, and this wasn't a full-strength England side. We know that a lot of their one-day record, not all of it, but a lot of their one-day record has been against sort of second-string teams, um, or second eleven teams, you know. In you know, they beat India. That wasn't a full strength team, and and I do think if if we put all that together, I think they went three and three against England and India, both where neither team was playing quite their full strength team. That's probably not too bad when they go to India, but I still really worry about them being able to score on you know the sorts of pitches that get two hundred and eighty to three fifty. Say, I I worry about them being able to be in those sorts of shootout games 
But when we saw it was, you know, at Chattagrom, it was another, you know, grit and grind Bangladeshi type wicket. Suddenly they really looked like they were, you know, the right team. And they had, I don't want to say fortune, but, you know, they took three wickets early on to really set England back. And and then they chipped away at them um, through the top balls as much as anything else and England's batting order. But, but I did feel that there was an element there of um, – there's an element of we already knew that about Bangladesh, but in the other games when it was a bit more open and free flowing, that's when we saw them struggle a little little bit. Having said that, they probably should have. Um, I still think they probably should have beat England in the game where Milan made his hundred. Um, so maybe they're not that far away. But it's interesting to think. You know, it's a long way away from the World Cup, but this is kind of when we have to start taking our form guide from and and having a look at how these teams fit together. You look at Bangladesh, they've got three very good seamers. They all do kind of three different things, which I like. You know, Taskin very much did their power play guy. Ebadot is sort of, you know, the, the hit the wicket, um, short pitching, bowling type of guy, although Taskin can obviously used to do that role. And then Mustafa, you know, can swing the ball now uh, more than he ever has, but also can bowl really well at the death. So good three seamers. Then they have the spinners. They have Shakib, obviously, who's a spinner, but in their top six. And Mehdi Hassan, who's... I think batting is probably his batting is slightly overrated at the moment, but I'm still hopeful he can develop into an all rounder going into the future. But even as a number eight is quite sorry, even as a number eight is quite strong, and I like I like that that lineup for them. Um, and I'm missing uh, Tajal Islam as well. And you know, um, I would like it if Mamadullah could bowl spin, but maybe in this lineup it doesn't matter as much. But that's three good strong spinners um, and three decent interesting. Um, Uh, quick bowls that they have available to them interesting side going ahead you know plus their normal shanto and um fif part-time spinning uh bowlers but it's just it's the same problem that we've always talked about me and muhammad Islam have done a podcast on it and red inca if you want to find about out about it just the indian batter indian batters bangladeshi batters just don't score at the rate that you want them to Uh, very briefly on um south africa west indies i think you know that was a series that there was just so much on. There's so much cricket on. It's ridiculous, right? Absolutely ridiculous uh, how much cricket there is on now. Um, so I didn't see a lot of it, but I just started to tune in at the end when I thought I thought West Indies had like a, what, 20 or 25% chance and saw the first 20 minutes of their innings uh, in their chase and they absolutely got blown off them. Really interesting uh, couple of sides there because they're probably fairly similar. I think... West Indies, uh, I think South Africa have slightly better bowling because partly because they have the ability to – they're giving up their number seven position, so they're picking an extra bowler quite often, uh, which is not always the case for the West Indies. Um, and I think there's maybe slightly a better batting side, but you could almost see how South Africa could win at home and West Indies could win at home in, in this particular series. Um be very interesting to see that over a short period of time if we had that but i think it tells you how much west indies have probably improved i saw some of their batting numbers the other day we've got a big video coming out on on india's top order um problems over the last little while i saw some of west indies batting and there has been a bump in the last three years in their batting and we know that their bowling's been really really good it doesn't always translate to away from the jukes balls where they have been very dependent um but i you know i certainly think that there is um some talent there. And I, I like that they were in that game against South Africa. It's probably not as good a sign for South Africa, but I did like that they were in that game for a little while, even if it ended very, very poorly. Um, but sometimes these things happen. All right. Uh, let us get over to the questions. Remember, if you have a super chat, 
and you want me to answer uh, anything for sure, I will get to that. But I've got a bunch of questions here uh, that I can get to. William says, what do England's frequent one-day collapses since 2019 say about their chances to retain the World Cup? Should we not read too much into it because of the absence of Root in the middle order? Yeah, but they haven't had Root and Morgan, so that was to be part of it. I think if you have Root and Milan and I'm not saying they're going to have Milan, but if you had Root and Milan or Root and Bairstow or whoever they go for in the middle, I'd be a little bit less worried about that. I'm not too worried based on the fact that England haven't played that much one-day cricket. And not only have they not played much one-day cricket, but their their players don't play a lot of T20 cricket. Sorry, players don't play any List A cricket anymore. So we heard that Roy and Butler talk about the fact that they just, they almost had to relearn one day cricket. And I think that's what, that's what we're going to see now. Uh, we're going to see sides sort of ramp up, ramp down for s- certain things. So there's no doubt after 2019, I don't think before he retired, I don't think Ben Stokes had actually played that many one days for England after that world cup. And that's not an accident, right? So they play Ireland and New Zealand at home. I think in one day is before the world cup. I would assume that is when we start to see their full lineup and we start to see where they are going. But I'm not too worried about the collapses uh, in, in that, but I'm be more worried about the fact that, you know, they may not have played as many of their best players in a short period of time coming into the World Cup. You know, their best players won't have played in Asia, for instance. And it's not that they have to relearn it because um, a lot of them have played there before, but it's not if you haven't played a lot of one day cricket and you haven't played a lot of one day cricket in Asia or you haven't played you know as much cricket in Asia of recent time. I think there's there's some questions that need to be asked, but I still think they're a pretty full strength team and having Joffre Archer back certainly is a big boost for them. Uh, Kyle says appreciated the Phil Hughes series. I can't get my words out. Uh, thank you, Kyle. If you want to go over to um, uh, double century i think the third episode of that will come out on friday but we're doing a uh, a history of the the phil hughes test so the test match will happen just after he passed away uh, other than the back of the neck guards and the concussion protocols were there other changes brought in or discussed but not implemented no i think kyle those were basically the two main things the, the neck guards was the huge one i don't think the concussion protocols were directly about phil hughes i think it's just that cte was becoming a bigger issue i think Chris Rogers and Justin Langer, um, I think there have been some tests on them that suggested that there were some cognitive changes. I mean, they're both head coaches, so, uh, you know, make jokes about Justin Langer on the test all you want. But certainly from that perspective, uh, you know, they haven't lost it too much. Um, Chris Rogers watches some of my videos, so uh, he certainly hasn't lost anything. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, I, I'm you're not particularly too worried about that sort of thing at all. Um, I, sorry, I shouldn't say. I don't think that was directly linked to the Phil Hughes one. The neck guard obviously was. I'm not sure that someone hadn't already invented them, though, but perhaps they I feel like Airtech or maybe it was one of the other helmet companies had already talked about them, but players certainly weren't using them at the same point. Uh, the other thing was there was a very, very low-level conversation. I don't know if it got to the ICC or the MCC, but there was, you know, talk about is this the time to ban the bouncer? It's a bit I don't think we'll get that far away from what has happened in rugby. So I think, you know, rugby is getting to the point where people are ban- you know, thinking about banning tackles. I think it might is it club rugby in England or something? You're only allowed to ta- tackle people below the waist. You know, I I I've I, you know, my cousin, my cousin, uh, uh, a friend of mine is a um uh, played semi-professional rugby and 
he, he always talks about it's fine having the same rules as you've always had, but you have to accept that the athletes have changed. And I think we've seen that in the NFL. You know, we've seen that in rugby and we're seeing it in cricket. People, there are more fast bowlers now than there ever been before. They're much more likely to hit by a very fast ball. Will we ever get to the point where countries ban bounces or the ICC or the MCC ban bounces? I, I don't think we're that close. I think this Phil Hughes one was maybe one of the first times that that conversation was had seriously. But as I said, don't think at a particularly high level. Um, and I'm trying to think if anything else uh, was brought out about that. No, I think that was basically it, Kyle. I think that was, you know, that was more or less it. But, you know, there were, I think the best thing is there was discussion. There should always be discussion. We Cricket has changed. <laughs> if you go back and you look at the early uh, fast bowlers and the footage we have of them, you know, they could bowl a bouncer, but it wasn't like this. And there weren't as many of them. And the pitches weren't as hard. Uh, bowling is way quicker than it's ever been. And there are may- way more people who can bowl it quick. There are maybe more left armers who can bowl it quick that you can't get away from and all sorts of things. Um, that I think those discussions are really healthy. I-, I mean, cricket is a great sport because it has developed with the times. And I think it should continue to do so. And I think that's a more than fair thing. Will says, in retrospect, should England have backed their batters to quickly add 300 runs against New Zealand rather than going for the follow-on? I'm not even sure it was in retrospect. I think I said it on air for TalkSport at the time. It's more the way I feel about the, the, the follow-on rather than that particular game. But I don't know if I've ever done this video, but I should probably do, you know, Jared Kimber's rules for follow-on because I think they're, I think teams really do get it wrong a lot when they do enforce the follow-on, which they almost never do anymore. But the reason that the, you should you should enforce the follow-on if you are way better than the other side. And I don't mean that you're just a team, two international teams and one's a little bit better than the other. But if you're way better than the other side, I've got no problem with you enforcing the follow-on. In this case, England was not way better than New Zealand. They were a better team in better form, but they weren't way better so that New Zealand weren't even, you know, within 10% of, of their talent. That's just not a fact. The next thing I look at is specifically, was the pitch a big part in what happened? So you're looking at if the pitch if the pitch isn't going to change, which you're hoping, and it might, but if the if the pitch is part of the reason that you took the wickets, then I think you're a fair chance to be able to do that. Just to enforce the follow-on and go, well, we think the pitch is going to act r- roughly the same. There'll be a bit of a regression, um, you know, and they might make it a little bit more runs, but it's still going to be difficult for them. So we bowled them out for 120, but we think we can bowl them out for 250 without too much problem. That's fine. Again. I don't think that was particularly the case. I think the new ball did something. And then after that, the pitch wasn't particularly in England's favor. The third one is what did the tail do? Were the tail comfortable or not comfortable? And you could also put this out too. Was there a particular batter who looked pretty comfortable? That's the VVS Laxman rule. But in this case, it was Tim Salvi. And I think if there's a tail ender making as many runs as Tim Salvi did and making them as comfortable, you know, there's chaotic hitting. There's lucky hitting, and there's what Tim Southey was doing, right? I think he just batted really, really well. Again, ding, 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 ding. I don't want to do it. I'd put a couple of other caveats in there as well. Uh, one is, in: do you have five bowlers? Because it's always better to do it if you have five bowlers. We knew that Ben Stokes' knee was pretty much crocked, and looks pretty, he still wants to play in the IPL. He won't be bowling very much by the look of it. So, so I think from that perspective, that's another issue that um, – it, it, that would have been against it. My other thing would be, is it, does it help Anderson and Broad? Do you, you know? Do you really want them to do the extra bowling back to back? I just don't see what their downsides would have been about them going out batting for two sessions and making you know three hundred. Um, 
And I think they win that game and I think they win that series. And in the end, they haven't done it. I think it was a mistake to do it. The, the, the other thing I would say that was in their advantage is I think the main reason, I mean, everyone thinks that, the, uh, you know, Kolkata and the VVS Laxman changed uh, follow-ons. We have enough data that just says that didn't happen. What really happens is that when teams start to play back-to-back test matches is when we start and we stop enforcing follow-ons. In this case, you know, the England bowlers are not going to be bowling for a very long time. So I'd be less worried about Broad and Anderson in that particular situation than I would be in others. But they still ended up being on the field for a very long time because of it. And that quite often happens with follow-ons. That's kind of the nature of a follow-on. Um, so, yeah, no, I wouldn't have done it. But I almost never would do it. Uh, Christopher says, not sure how much you've seen of Rickleton, but being left out of the test versus West Indies is criminal. I've watched plenty of him for a few years now, and to somehow be dropped after a few innings is terrible. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Was he in my video? I have seen him bat. I'm trying to think if I've seen him bat much at test level. I'm trying to think if he was on my, in my video on um, on South Africa's batting, uh, which came out a while ago, uh, Christopher, um, if you haven't seen it. In fact, I've done about 100 videos on on them look he played three tests i'm just looking up his numbers now he's played three tests and averaged 26 um 26 years old and he averages 54 in first class cricket it's pretty hard to suggest that that isn't an above average talent i'd have to have a look at the splits i don't have them in front of me sorry um on this on this part of my computer to have a look at his you always have to have a look at south african splits to make sure that you know he's not averaging 83 at the provincial level and and 25 at the uh, at the franchise level. But I, I like Rickleton. I think there's a lot of odd decisions. I, I mean, you know, if you go back and have a look at that piece, they're picking a lot of guys who are 28, 29, 30, who are reaching low peaks of batting. And in any, you know, uh, me and Amal Dese have a video, a podcast coming out soon that's all about ages and everything else. You have to save. These guys weren't particularly good between the age of 21 and 27, um, and they've been above average between 27 and 29. By the time you pick them, they're probably on the decline, or you might get one decent year out of them. There's a lot of younger um, players. Um, is it DeZorzi, Rickleton? Um, there's another guy as well um, whose name has escaped me. When you look at their records, they're far younger, and you think this is – and they've got better records in many cases. Even someone like DeZorzi, who I think averages – might even average 40 in first-class cricket. But if you have a look at it, it's a lot of it. His average is really low in the first couple of years. And then when he becomes 24, 25, 26, or whatever age he is, he then massively steps up. Those are the players that historically do better in test cricket, players who are really good by the time they're 23, 24, not the players who are historically good by 27, 28. But I've got no problem with picking a Rassi or, you know, and so, uh, yeah, or a Heinrich Klassen. But when your entire batting order is made up of the same kind of player I don't see the point. I don't see the upside. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, but yes, uh, I mean, I don't understand the way they pick batters. Also, I don't understand, Christopher, why they only pick six batters. But that's, you know, point for another day, really. Anand says, should Kuldeep be in the last test ahead of Siraj? Um, I don't know how they fit four. It's really hard as a captain to use four spinners in a lineup. Um so, I mean, already we're seeing Akshar not, not bowling that much. You know, Cool Deep's really going to struggle to fit in. So then you're picking him, but he doesn't play that much. It's just an awkward situation to be in. I, I like, I mean, I haven't seen the pitch or, or anything like that. So I'm going 
without without having seen the pitch at all. But I, I like the idea of of that because I don't think you need two seamers in this situation. I'm trying to think of why you would need a second seamer. If you thought there was going to be any sideways movement and then you would have Shami to be able to bowl swing later on. Yeah, I suppose the two seamers still make sense. I'm not sure there's that much to be gained by having Kuldeep, but I'm not sure there's that much to be gained by having Siraj. So I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. I've talked about this in the World Cup. I, I might actually make a video on this during this this last test if I get a chance, depending on how long it goes. India could pick a team in India at the moment with only three specialist bowlers. So you could have, I don't know, Akshar at 11, <laughs> Ashwin at, at 10. I suppose Jadeja still bats a little bit higher. Um, if you wanted, you could have, I don't know, Washington Sundar there if you wanted, um, and then have specialist batters all the way down to whenever it is, whatever my numbers are and that. You, you could do something really, really funky because I'm not sure they need, if they're going to have wickets like this, I'm not sure they need a seamer and their top order isn't making any runs. If you had Jadeja at seven and I don't know, who would you put in? Safras or Prefi, um, or you brought Vahari back, or um, you know, I'm trying to think of who else you would have down the order. Whoever, whoever you maybe you're trying to, you know, Ishan Kishan, if you wanted to see him in Test cricket a little bit more. However you wanted it, you could have fantastically funky lineup. Um, but I will probably do a whole video on that. But that's just something I've been thinking of recently. Is they have the ability to do something like that, and I don't think. I can't think of it ever being done before. And so it would be endlessly fun. And maybe you have to do it with Washington Sundar as your extra batter just because, you know, some, in case someone gets injured. But hey, that could be fun, couldn't it? What a lineup. <laughs> Judasia at six, KS Barrett at seven, Washington Sundar at eight, uh, Ashwin at nine. Oh, no, I've got it wrong. I can move them all further back. It's ridiculous what you could do. Anyway. Stay tuned for that. Let me get to the super chat, which comes from Dovetail, who says, do you think the pitch curator in India can prepare a pitch which favours India? Unlike Australia, great cricketer have been consistently protesting how unfair this is. Okay, that must be why everyone's talking about great cricketer. Do you think the pitch curator in India can prepare a pitch India which favours India? Well, they already do. Um, so, yes. Do I think, I think what you're asking is, do I think they should uh, so I've said this a million times. We don't need to doctor our pitches in Australia. The vertical bounce is so much different than anywhere else. I, I had a LinkedIn conversation with someone this week who was saying, oh, but it's like South Africa. I'm like, they're not like South Africa. Even South Africans would admit that Australia is a different kind of pitch. And South Africa has other kinds of pitches. They have green tops. They have really slow wickets at times. Um, you know, very different. You know, you get a lot more seam movement in South Africa than you do in Australia. South African wickets are really more like a combination of, let's say, New Zealand and Australia. But Australian wickets are really, really awkward. I, I've never done this, but, you know, I've got a piece in me where I, I talk about batters the first time they play in Australia and them really trying to come to grips with how different it is than batting everywhere else in the world. The ability to leave on length, 
the fact that when you come on to the front foot, the balls hit you on the gloves, uh, the way the short balls um, steeple on you, all these sorts of things, it is so different. So, I mean, I don't know. Great cricketers probably just making jokes. So, you know, it's just Sam and Higo. That's more than fine. Um, what I would say is there's a lot of talk about and uh, um, there's a lot of talk about how India is um, doctoring their pitches. Let us not forget that South Africa doctored their pitches for about three years as well. Uh, Faf Duplessis said, our team is stronger um, than everyone else. We're tougher men. Some sort of proper Dutchman comment, I'm sure, came out afterwards. We could take the ball on the chest um, and we're going to take more hits than anyone else. And so we're going to make sure our pitches ha- are spicy off the length um, and people take balls on. And that's how we're going to you know, win some test matches. I think... They did okay, but I don't think they dominated because they weren't a particularly good side at that point probably um, uh, is part of the problem. But I think they did okay. It's just not as much of an issue, right? Now, partly that is because South Africa doesn't get the press coverage of India. And if you flip the two around, it would be just as much of an issue. In fact, I think it would have been a bigger issue because of the player safety thing. But India is always going to get more press coverage. Uh, You know, New Zealand completely changed how their pitches were what, four years ago? And they did it to benefit their side, right? So there's two places that did it. uh, West Indies changed their ball from Kookaburra to Dukes because they thought that that would help them with seam bowlers. You know, we've certainly seen pitches in England that have favoured the home team. What I would say about India, and again, I don't know what the great cricketer we're talking about in this particular case, but what I would say about India is they've probably gone too far. And I don't mean that from a cricket perspective because... The, the most doctored pitches in the world are T20 pitches um, in tournaments and uh, first-class pitches, by the way. So what Indy's doing is not that much different to what many first-class cricket teams around the world have done. Um, but but what I would say is India have probably taken it too far and I think they're almost giving away their advantage at this point and they've lost a test because of it. And also they're losing, they're going through generational batting talent at a rate that, I don't think any cricket team in history has ever gone through as many batters with as much talent as India have. And we're still probably, Kohli could still get dropped if this continues. Um, Pajara could still get dropped if this continues. Uh, who else am I missing? Um, uh, Shubman Gill, what's he averaging? How many tests? Everyone wanted him in over KRO. If he fa- uh, if, uh, fails in the next couple of tests, that could change as well. So I think from that perspective, They've gone too far, and I think they've found the right balance. I think I think it's a mistake, but from a from a pitch doctoring point of view, if we're really going to talk about this, the best way to do it, as I've said a million times on this channel, is get the Hawkeye data in, work out what that pitch does, um, and then we can work back from it and say, okay, this is what we expect this pitch to do. It did this. It was absolutely unplayable um, in this particular way, or it was absolutely unplayable early, but it actually evened out. We take all the nonsense away from it. But there is absolutely no doubt that it is incredibly hard to bat in India. And I can tell you that because I did a video about how it's hard to tour India like a week and a half ago. And now I'm doing a a video on how hard it is for Indians to bat in India, uh, which kind of tells you everything, right? Um, They've made their decision. I think they would win without it. Um, But it would would change certain dynamics, as I said, when it comes to the load that their spinners have and it might change other things. But I think that the payoff at the moment is that their batters are losing confidence at record rates, and I don't think they have to. Anyway, the the video I've made will come out tomorrow if I ever finish this podcast. 
Fahim says, Bangladesh pace bowling has seen drastic improvements in the last two years. Going forward, do you think they can actually win games in center countries given their platform and environment? I think their biggest problem with the center countries is the batting. I don't think it's seam bowling anymore. We saw them beat New Zealand. So if you're asking if they can win games in center countries, yeah, <laughs> they beat New Zealand. I love those three seamers. Um, Ebedot, obviously, I, I mean, he was someone who, I don't know if everyone knows the full story. As I said before, he was a uh, I was saying professional, but he was, an, he was a volleyball athlete uh, involved in the Bangladesh um, uh, Air Force. Went to a pace bowling competition, as happen, seems to happen to a lot of Bangladesh and Sri Lankan guys, you know, gets found at one of these competitions. Sort of gets fast-tracked as an adult, I suppose, as a, you know, fully grown man. He's quite a big man as well. Um, and you can see when he plays that there's a lot of things he doesn't know. Um, but I don't know what his height is, but he looks like six foot four, six foot five. He actually collapses a little bit when he releases the ball. He's probably missing out on a couple of inches off his overall release. He's fast. Um, he does a little bit with the ball. You know, just a really good prospect going forward for them. You know, you then got Taskin Armand, who again has taken forever to develop, but you watch him in that World Cup in Australia just recently, and you think this is a really good bowler. Mustafisa, who, you know don't know if anyone's more obsessed with the fizz than I am. And, you know, I've done huge projects on him before. There's a, a video I made a couple, uh, maybe a couple of years ago on this site. It's one of my favorites to make. Uh, where the, one of the things I did for that video, it was take all of his slow balls and send them to other people who are seen as slow ball specialists and have them tell me uh, how to break, uh, break them down. And even they were like, this guy's incredible. <laughs> um, they couldn't believe some of the balls I was sending them. Um, you know, I found some great super slow-mo footage of him. But But anyway... Again, one thing I love about Mustafa is that he was in the game because he did something no one else has ever done before. But then his arm slowed down and he had to do other things to maintain his talent. And he has. I love that. I love a player who can continue, can continue to evolve. It shows how clever he is and how adaptable he is and that he will ultimately, as long as his body stays together, have a very good career. So uh, I really like that. But I worry still about their batting. You know, I, I watch Shanto struggle when the, when there was extra pace on the ball, you know, how's he going to go in, you know, South Africa or, um, uh, Australia, um, there, there, when it comes to limited overs cricket specifically, I still just don't think they can hang with the, the other teams who just have so many players who can score a lot quicker than they do. And I think that when you look at Tamim or Shakib, who are obviously the most important batters, when they score quickly, I always feel that there's just, it's not as repeatable as some other players in world cricket, but I I like the I like that Bangladesh has, especially in limited overs cricket, but even perhaps in Test cricket, you know, one of the strongest bowling attacks they've ever had. Their biggest issue is, of course, if Shakib retires, um, just because there's no one to replace him unless Mahedi Hassan <laughs> bats in the top six, and you know, I think in ODIs in 2021 he averaged six and then in ODIs in 2022 he averaged 66 and made 100 not out um so there's progress there I don't see him as ever being able to bat in the top six but even if he bats at number seven perhaps um you know and then they've got uh wiki keepers who can bat uh, in the top six that gives them uh flexibility to cover Shakib a little bit Hikari says I'm at a bad won't be a turner uh well I'm not there so I can't tell you Likely to be helpful for Pacers to prepare for a World Test Championship. Should India drop Axar for additional Pacer, even though he's been India's best batter in the series? It, that all just depends on how, I'm not worried about the batting. 
It really depends a lot more on the pitch. If it's definitely not going to be a, a, a wicket for spin bowling, then I've got no problem with them dropping that. But if they think it's going to be a wicket where you need seamers, but probably just for, you know, what, 50 overs, you can probably do that with two seamers, right? I, I'm not sure you need the third seamer unless there's a particular reason, um, you know, it, it, unless it's workload right? Or a separate skill. Like if you had Boomerad, that might be different. Um, but if it's going to be Umesh, say, um, they, they might just look at the skills that they have of their current bowls and think that they can cover that. Um, but they may not. Uh, the batting, I, I, you know, you, you should never, where, where's he batting at the moment? Number nine. You should never keep someone in a, in a team because they're good at batting at number nine, even if they've made some runs recently. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, and last one, Voice says, uh, the World Cricket League uh, Division 2 ending has become very interesting uh, with qualification and retaining ODI status. Have you been following it? I haven't, but weirdly enough, I took this question just because I think it was today I started, you know, nosing around a little bit for the same reason uh, that you're saying it. It has become a little bit more interesting and um, it's something that I would look at going ahead. But, yeah, it's it's getting fun up there. The, it. When you follow that level of cricket, the one thing that you find is that the games mean so much. So I, I wrote a, a piece a few years ago. I went to see a random Holland-Hong Kong game. So I was in Hong Kong, and I was there to write about their captain, Emma Lai. Um, their women's captain, I should say. Sorry, uh, Emma Lai. And, and I was just there for that, really. But then you, you stumble onto these two games. It was two really good games of cricket. Uh, you know, Netherlands were firing at that stage, and... They did really, really well, and um, they beat Hong Kong in both those games. But Hong Kong played really good cricket along the way, and I sat on the bench with Hong Kong. It was a really cool experience, all, all things considered. But I, I'd have to go back and have a look at my piece. But Tim Cutler, who was then the CEO of Hong Kong Cricket, I think he's now the CEO of Vanuatu Cricket and also runs Emerging Cricket, he, um, he was in a situation where he was telling me that that game has potentially cost Hong Kong Cricket a million dollars. I can't remember if it was the series or the game, but I think it was just one game because of where it put them. You know, you don't get million-dollar games that often in the major part of cricket. You know, you can be fairly dog shit for a long period of time and it doesn't particularly matter, whereas you do see that in this in this level of cricket that you're talking about, and it's, it's one really fascinating thing. And even if it's not a million dollars for funding or anything like that, you know, if, if you've got a game where one team is potentially going down a division, you know, that's it, that local government might, pool funding, um, you know, they might struggle to, you know, they're not going to be in the next World Cup, all those sorts of things. It's really massive and it's really important for those teams. And it's one thing I really loved being around it when I was working for Scotland was obviously it was great to work with um, Scotland, but but I was really interesting. I thought it was really, really interesting um, to just follow the, uh, the teams as they won and lost and, you know, watching, I think it was Kenya. Kenya were just like, oh, but it's not at this level, and you know, and you just and they could they just realized that they they just fallen back so far from the other teams, and there were a lot of really good teams in that tournament. And Singapore, who beat Scotland in the first game, and then so it kind of fizzled out. They lost one of their best bowlers because he was called for chucking, and all these sort of really interesting subplots, and all these things are so important um, to these players. And you know, a lot of them are put, a lot of the the sort of non professionals. You know, they're taking time off work to represent their country, hoping that something will come of it, right? And, and knowing in their, in some cases that it may not even happen for them, that it may happen for everyone else. Um, you know, that they, you know, I remember, I can't remember if it was the Irish cricketers I was talking to once, and I was talking to some of the Irish cricketers about whether they were upset that the current players got treated so well and got 
finances and all these things that happened for them. One of the players was like, no, that was part of the reason we played. We played to get as good as we could so that we could get to this level, so we could be a proper team. So, yeah, we missed out on it, but someone else did. And I love that. I love that atmosphere because not all ex-players are like that. Some ex-players are like, can't believe this guy gets paid money. I was a better cricketer than him. So it was really, really interesting. Um, so I haven't followed it much voice at the moment, um, but I followed it a little bit. Um, and, I'm, you know, I, I, I will cast an eye on it, but, you know, follow people like Andrew Nixon and Peter Delapena and, and Bertus Jong and Emerging Cricket. And then I'm sure they're all following it, but I haven't been, haven't been as uh, full on with it of recent times. Uh, that's the end of the podcast. Just wanted to say um, a big thanks to everyone for coming onto the live, onto the chat, for asking your questions, even if I didn't get to them and everything else. Um, uh, but what I what I would want to say is uh, you might have noticed that 99.94 uh, podcasts, if you listen to any of those, they've had to go into pause. Unfortunately, we just ran into financial difficulties. I think we've run the network for about six months now. It's cost us a lot of money. We were hoping to be in a slightly better uh, situation financially. Um and we just haven't got there at the moment. It's not the end for 99.94 at the moment, but we have had to stop the podcast. So if, to any of you who have listened, uh, just a big thanks, but just mostly just a huge shout out to the team behind um, the scene who've worked on it. Um, people like AJ and Maida and Moku and some of the other uh, Ishits and, and and all the people who've, who've worked on it. Uh, and Nick, um, I'm trying to think who else. There's probably more. There's there's so many more that have worked on it behind the scenes, but also to the hosts. Uh, you know, I wanted to create something that I wanted to listen to, um, and that I knew that cricket was missing. I think the first podcast we put up was the West Indies one, and the Caribbean cricket podcast was great. For, you know, M- Michelle and Santoki did a great job there, but you know, they took it to another level uh, when they came across to West in- West Indies on ninety nine point nine four. You know, I loved the pairing of Nikesh and Sara, um, and then. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think who we brought in next, but then it was the South African team, you know, Manners and, and Lungana were absolutely brilliant together as well. Um, and then we got, you know, Norcross and, and Rory, which is kind of like getting the two people I watch fight the most in bars um, onto a podcast together. So I was a huge fan of that. Obviously, you know, we were trying to move it. We had a Bangladeshi host lined up. We start, started the Australian podcast, but there were issues there with, with everything as well. But thank you to everyone who did listen and support and, you know, it's not the end. We've sort of done the hard part of building the business, um, in, you know, starting it and getting it going. The next thing is just whether we can get someone to come in and financially back it at the level that we want to. Uh, we certainly got, a, you know, a huge uh, amount of listeners uh, right across the world, watches and people following it on social media and all those different things. And we were just starting. So I'm hoping to go on, but just letting you know at the moment that all those podcasts um, have been paused. Obviously, all my podcasts are still going. Um, and a big thanks to Edges and so as, as as well, who were on the network. And um, obviously, they've had to leave us and uh, manage themselves again. But just a big thanks to everyone involved with bringing 99.94 together. Um, I can't thank everyone individually, but, you know, um, obviously people like Basu and Shankar and Harry and all the people who worked behind the scenes on 99.94 and all the different parts of it, uh, you know, that, that went ahead. Uh, so thank you so much. But it's not the end. Uh, there's still many different opportunities for us to have a look at going forward and, uh, you know, watch this space. Just watch this space because it'll just be me. Um, and uh, remember, if you want to... Uh, support us here on this particular channel you can by going to patreon or you can find jared kimber and buy me a coffee or you can just buy access to my emailer or you can just mail me um cash i'm pretty sure that's legal anyway thank you very much and i'll see you again next time 
This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sindarisa is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.